0: Um, There's a lot of like, if I was a data analyst for five years, I feel like there's just as many, if if not more, like really good skills that I would learn in in that uh, position uh, compared to like a, a PhD that I just have a certificate at the end of five years.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. This episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors is powered by Z by HP, HP's high compute, workstation-grade on of products and solutions. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Scott Cole. Scott is technically a machine learning engineer in the fintech space, but he stubbornly prefers data scientist as a title. He studied bioengineering at Clemson University before moving to UC San Diego for grad school, where he developed algorithms and Python packages to analyze brainwave data. Scott then went through the Insight Data Science program, and for the last two years, he's been building algorithms for detecting fake accounts on a peer-to-peer payment app. Scott's most known for eating hundreds of burritos during grad school and curating a small database of all their qualities along 10 dimensions. In this episode, we learn the origin of Scott's burrito dataset, how he narrowed his career search based on his interests, and how he's trying to create a data-centric board game. I hope you enjoy our episode. I know I had a blast speaking with Scott. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast this week. Uh, I'm really excited for this one. I obviously was introduced to you through Nick Wan, through I saw you on Sliced. I also heard and have analyzed your burrito data set, which I think is very fascinating. And I just knew I had to, if someone put together that data set, I figured they would probably be interesting to talk to on the show. So again, thank you for coming in and uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: Um, (laughs) It's kind of funny how like, how much that burrito project i keep hearing about it years and years later like uh stopped collecting burrito data for like two or three years but the project the project lives on and it, it was a it was a fun data set even if the the burritos in san francisco aren't as good as the ones in san diego
1: well you know i think that that's sort of the beauty of a data science project right is it lives on beyond the time you've spent working on it right it also essentially like advertises for you while you sleep or, or while you're doing something else. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with that data set and probably familiar with you because of it. And like you did that work once again, like two years ago, and now you're still, you know, getting awareness, you're getting podcast interviews, you're getting uh, whatever it might be that, that came out of that, which I think is like a, a really positive thing for just sharing your work and, and putting stuff that you're passionate out uh, about into the world.
0: And and I'm definitely hoping that some people are just finding good burritos in San Diego. Like I I am a little worried if someone might say, like, oh, I tried the number one burrito in your data set and I thought it was a junk. Um, but yeah, hopefully guiding people in the in the right direction too. <laughs>
1: Well, I am planning a trip to San Diego just to, oh, yeah. to tour burritos based on the data set. So I'll whenever I get out to do that, I'll let you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like I have to offer the caveat where the so the number one uh, rated burrito in the data set was Valentine's, where it's like my personal favorite is called the Taco Stand. So I'd recommend you to go to the taco stand and uh, I feel like there's there's like an important caveat of the data. Where the data I was collecting at Valentine's tended to be tourists who were coming to San Diego. So my friends who were visiting who were in downtown where Valentine's is, they often it was like their first San Diego burrito. So they had like maybe a, a low low uh, low expectations um, or or low standards, I, I should say. So I feel like that might have artificially inflated uh valentine's ratings uh anyway there that's just like one caveat of the of the data that
1: well i i based all my cont- burrito decisions on the <laughs> qu- purely quantitative metrics so i was only looking at at the 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 mass and the and the length oh, yeah. of the burritos
0: <laughs> um, no no, no. It, was, it was fun uh just whipping out a tape measure and seeing people give me weird looks uh i in love burrito that. shops
1: Yeah, I wish you'd brought like a scale to everyone. That would have been some next level stuff. Uh, I mean, they make pocket scales now. For the next, uh, when you start Mm -hmm. measuring all the burgers or something in San Francisco, or all the poke bowls, uh, (laughs) you can start using the scale.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of my friends actually, a couple years into the project, gave me a scale for my birthday. And so I, for a while, tried to figure out how to balance a burrito on a scale. Uh, but it's pretty difficult.
1: <laughs> that is hilarious. So in order to I mean obviously, I think that was a pretty pretty good way to get acquainted with <laughs> you. but for for the listeners who are familiar with like the normal structure of of uh, of the interview how how did you first get interested in technology and data? Was there just a pivotal moment where you're like, hey, this is what I want to do and what I'm interested in, or was it more of a slow progression?
0: feel like it was a bit of stumbling around. Uh, in, in, in undergrad, I uh, started off sort of on like a wet lab um, track where I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I was like, oh, I like science and math. Uh, so I uh, you know, was doing, basically encouraged to like, oh, I started doing research. And I didn't really know what research was at the time, but I was playing playing around with some chemicals uh not not ended up not being a huge fan of it like i felt like i know i wasn't my experiments would often like get contaminated uh, from bacteria or something and i didn't feel like i had a lot of control over it uh so what i found that i liked more uh was um like a signal processing class that i took where it was pretty much like oh we have this complicated signal can we Deconstruct what that means, and uh, I had also been like looking into brain data at the time. And when I saw the signals in the class, it reminded me of like, oh, there are these brain waves that uh, people see when they record from the brain, and like, I think it'd be so cool if we were able to like understand what that meant. So I feel like brainwave data was what initially got me interested into uh, data science in general, just like thinking, oh, if we could understand what these noisy signals are, then we could maybe enhance our brains or or treat disease or something really cool.
1: That's awesome. I've been getting a lot more interested in the different brainwave data uh, types. Well, I guess it's all the same. The different frequencies is probably more Mm -hmm. apt way to put it. We're reading this book called Altered Traits. And it's about the science of meditation and like what's true and mm-hmm. what's not true and evaluating like the, the brains of like hardcore meditators or people that that practice with different protocols. And it's pretty fascinating. A lot of it is just like debunking that like, hey, meditation is supposed to do this, but it actually doesn't. Uh, but the real science that, that they've uncovered is also pretty fascinating of like these Tibetan monks that they bring in and how different their brains work than than someone who's on their phone or computer all the time is, is pretty wild. Um, <laughs> but so obviously you took that a step further and you, you studied within that domain for quite a period of time. Do you mind kind of walking me through, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from that moment of realizing this is interesting, where did that take you or how did that provide some direction?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't too sure or um, what to do after undergrad other than go to grad school. Uh, getting a real job seemed pretty scary. So I feel like I was on the track of like, okay, I'm in research. I can keep doing more school. So I applied to a bunch of bioengineering and neuroscience grad programs kind of with this dream of like, oh, I can spend my days analyzing brain data and understanding what it means. Um, So I, yeah, ended up in San San Diego and uh, was in the first year uh starting to like do experiments and rotate between a few labs uh, to figure out what i wanted to do um and the experimentation part was really challenging for me like uh, we had a boot camp at the beginning where we had to record from leeches and i was just so helpless in trying to collect my own data uh, and my first rotation was uh like i i attempted to do some surgeries to implant electrodes into uh, an animal's brain and i had to get a lot of help from the senior grad students um so i i quickly realized how how helpless i wasn't collecting my own data so i was like so i uh in into other labs that had the like you know cheat code of grad school where i don't have to collect my own data we rely on collaborators who send us data and we just get to analyze it and that, that sounded a lot more fun um so i i uh, ended up rotating in, in, in like a matlab lab and a python lab and uh, ended up choosing the python lab uh yeah par- partly not so much for the science itself but just thinking like oh if i want to like want to become a data scientist after uh after graduating, after I realized how helpless I was in collecting my own data, it, it sounds like it's useful to know Python.
1: That's well, awesome. Uh, and I, I mean, it obviously sounds like you were interested or aware of data science relatively early on. and And I mean, it sounds like you weren't interested in necessarily pursuing academia that far. Why did you yeah. decide to just like stick it out through all the research rather than and, and like getting finishing the PhD <laughs> rather than just like jumping out early?
0: yeah it's, it's part of uh just being intimidated of what is outside of grad school i trying to find a real job just sounded scary yeah p- partially and partially like also just being i don't know still uh, still genuinely interested in trying seeing if i can discover something new about the brain but it was actually funny in one of my interviews uh before i even started grad school a senior grad student was giving a talk about how um how he realized that what he was was passionate about was not actually the research. It was actually data science. And I I watched his talk and I was like, oh crap, maybe that's me. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But uh, I suppressed that thought a little until I got to boot camp. And then as I mentioned, the the failed experimentation reminded me like, oh, uh, this this is difficult. I (laughs) I uh, may want another route, and I feel like I got pretty lucky in the lab. I ended up joining um, Brad Wojtek. He was actually a data scientist at Uber before he became a professor. So our, um, our lab was very like data science oriented, and we had this eccentric postdoc who would yell at me for how bad my code was uh, in a way to uh, help, help build up our skill. Um, and really, give us more options out like after graduating, and I'm very thankful for that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I really like that you <clears throat> that you kind of stuck through it because you enjoyed the pursuit of like information and knowledge. That's something that I really, um, I, I really like. Wish I had appreciated more when I was going through school or when I was doing some of these things. I mean, it took me to like the second grad program I did. To realize that, hey, like I'm doing this because I like am fascinated with learning, not just a means to an end. And I think if a lot of people took that approach with their education more, they'd get a lot more out of it, right? It's like, oh, I have to get to school, get through school to get a job. I have to do this and that. It's like, no, there's a lot of things that you can do during school that will be very meaningful in a job market or whatever might be, but you can also find like utility in them. You can also put your own fun spin on them. You can also like enjoy that process. Uh, and I, I just, I just get really disappointed when I look back and I see that my own like transactional nature with education, but then I see other people like trying to do a master's in data science or something like that. Well, it's like, are they really going to learn data science? Or are they going to land a job? Right. And it's like, you can do both mm-hmm. and you can have fun with both. But uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going the other route where it's just like, Hey, I, I know this is like something that will be helpful in a job search uh, I'm just going to do it to to put it to check that off my list. And like, that's a lot of time, you know. to, yeah, to check I, a I feel, box,
0: right? <laughs> I, I feel like I I wouldn't have made it if uh, I got felt fairly lucky in that. Like, oh, I get to spend my days analyzing data the way I want to analyze data. Um, so that that freedom definitely helped me um, keep going.
1: I love that, and so. Um, how did you make this eventual transition from academia to data science? I think that that's something uh, a lot of people probably have questions about.
0: To- totally. Um, yeah. I, my, my mind shift was pretty quick or early on. Uh, I wanted to do an internship to, to get a sense of like, Oh, what, what is work like outside of academia? Um, and I, Did a a short one about three months, um, with a place called crime lab, New York, um, where it it wasn't like a, a company or anything. It was a small organization, actually part of university of Chicago, but it partnered with local city governments in order to like analyze data for them. Um, and My project that I got to work on was analyzing police officer behavior and, um, and trying to predict like, okay, which officers are most likely to get, um, an excessive force complaint. And then those are the officers that should get, uh, de-escalation training. So, so the department wanted to allocate those resources really effectively. So it was a fun, uh, Cool, like data science opportunity, and like, doing that um, made me pretty sure, like, okay, there, there are a lot of cool questions out there beyond neuroscience. Um, That's uh, pretty, I, I
1: relevant one, like that. pretty relevant one. Pretty relevant yeah. one. These did you did you do that uh, like while you were doing your PhD, or did you take a break to do that, or what did that look like?
0: Yeah, I took a break. I was sick of looking at the same like rats data um, for for almost a year, so took a few months off. Um, and then went back to finish my PhD another year, um, and then, um, moved up to San Francisco to, to find a job. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Um, and so what was your first, uh, well, like what, after that, how did you mm-hmm. actually land that first job? You know, did, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, I think you, we talked about like, bootcamp was involved. What did, what did, right. uh, that process look like?
0: Right. Right. Um, so Yeah. Well, I had heard this bootcamp advertised called Insight, which is, takes a bunch of um, grad students disgruntled with academia and uh, put, throws them all in a room together um, and says they all of them want a, a data science job. Um, so I, I did that program, which was eight weeks. They uh, basically say, everyone, you, you need to work on the project. Um, and... Uh, we we work together, which is a really cool atmosphere uh, to to be in. Um, just a bunch of people in the same situation, not really sure like what data science is yet, um, but really really hoping to get a job. Um, Insight brought in um, data scientists from a, a few dozen companies uh, to tell us what their work was like to to give us um, more of a sense of oh this is what. Working at um, a, a startup, was like, or or a fintech company, or a, a consultancy, or something like that, which really opened my eyes uh, to uh, the, the possibilities. Before that, I kind of only knew of like, oh, I could be a data scientist at big, some big name company. I, I didn't really know much about, uh, yeah, other other options. Um, so at, in that bootcamp. Um, we were pretty uh, a, a lot of us uh, just really eager to get any sort of job. Um, interviewing for months is uh, not fun, uh, and we all commiserate uh, w- with each other. Um, so uh, after that, I my my first data science job um, was at a TV analytics company that I, I found through Insight. Uh, that that was, that was cool. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the team I, I worked with, but, uh, after a few months sort of figured out that I wasn't really passionate about, uh, what I was doing, um, like or- organizing TV data in order to, uh, make ad targeting better. Um, and started thinking of what, like, Oh, well, what else could be out there that, that was actually triggered by my manager at the time uh she decided to leave so when she left i was like oh maybe maybe uh maybe i'm not as into this either um and i was really lucky that one, one of the uh, guys i had met when i moved to san francisco uh was worked in fraud detection uh for for a fintech company and was like hey uh we have open positions uh you should you should come help us fight fraud. I was like oh, that, that sounds fun. Uh, so yeah, after after a few months I, I jumped to there and I've been doing fraud detection ever since.
1: That's awesome. Well, you you told me offline that you probably never saw yourself working in fintech, but you fell, uh, but you kind of fell in love with fraud detection and that type of problem. Mm-hmm. How do you find problems that you're interested in solving? What is that process like? Or like you know, how do you Go about finding things that are interesting to you. You know, you recognize that the <laughs> the work of the TV analytics company like didn't really scratch your itch. But how do you right. go about again finding those those areas that you do find interesting?
0: Yeah, I, I'd say it's not a conscious thing I do, but more just like thinking throughout my life, what are the things that I enjoy and identifying like, oh, there's a job opportunity there. So I've always, I don't know, felt like. I enjoy like seeing systems gamed or, or hacked slightly. So like creating like I've created like fake profiles on websites and um, just like found that that process funny. So the concept of someone like making fake bank accounts and stealing money kind of like seemed like a game in some sense of like oh can I like outsmart this person uh, who's trying to like trick the system. Um, I had, I had heard a talk in grad school of someone who did fraud detection and I was just like, Oh, that, that sounds fascinating. Um, uh, another thing that I am interested in is like online dating data science, just because like, I've felt like I've, I've personally heavily relied on online dating to meet people because meeting people in in real life can be difficult. And I I really like that. Especially now. (laughs) exactly uh i really like the idea of there being like a database with these like pr- properties of people who like um may end up being like really good matches with one another i think that that is likely to like build a lot like potentially a lot better relationships than just like whoever i can randomly meet uh throughout life um so like That is one thing I'm thinking of, of like, oh, if I could contribute to the algorithms uh, that help people meet each other, like that's another area that I'm really interested in. But I, yeah, I don't think that there's any like systematic way I identify them, but just sort of keeping my eye out for what what might mesh with my interests.
1: I really like that. I I think, again, we talked offline and one thing you mentioned to me is that you started looking for positions after the, the TV company based mm-hmm. on what your interests were, not the other way around. You weren't just looking for another job. You were looking at a position that, that would be able to, in one of those spaces. And it just so mm-hmm. happened one of them was at a, a fintech company, right? And this opportunity came about. Um, can you talk about maybe the importance of that for you and how that maybe might have been a little bit different than your first uh, experience when you were just trying to land a job?
0: yeah I, I think part of my motivation is uh la- laziness in some way where um when I first wanted a job like I just wanted to stop studying and I was just like, I would just want this interview process to be done uh, and find like something that's reasonable where like one of my top priorities uh, along with something I'm interested in is just having like a team that who I'm comfortable with and working with nice people like that will at least like make my life you know fairly happy um whereas once i had a job my laziness becomes like okay i don't want to interview so much i don't want to like look for so many different companies i want to really limit my scope to like two positions that i'm especially interested in um so yeah that that's why i was figuring okay i only want to look at fraud detection companies right now and if they both reject me then fine i'll once I work up the energy to apply to more companies, uh, then I'll, I'll look into something more.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. It's a, a really important point I think you brought up in, in terms of like efficiency and, and like sort of laziness is that a lot of people think it's most efficient to just apply to a bunch of companies and see what what hits, right? It's like, oh, you know, I can send out this generalized resume, whatever it might be. I actually think it's the opposite. I think if you're applying very specifically in a niche, uh, one, the projects you do or the the way you prepare can be a lot more specialized, which gives you a significantly higher chance of getting an interview or or landing the job. But two, like, you know, you're able to like hone in and and it, it essentially work less than trying to please everyone. You're just trying to please a couple in this specific space, and you can get so much more specific with your language and your resume and these types of things. That I think it's actually, as you mentioned, like way more efficient to do that like figure out exactly what you want and and cater everything to to give you the best chance at those fewer positions than to just spread yourself so thin because then like just as you described you have to prepare for all these different types of interviews you have to do x y z i would imagine that fraud detection interviews right they're probably more similar to other fraud detection interviews than like a broad generalist data science interview right and so if 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 you know that you can prepare for those things right
0: I think in the future it would it would be actually in the the uh, interviews I ended up doing for fraud detection it was just a general like data science pipeline, um, but but I think as like someone gets more senior and like specialized in, in fraud detection it probably be that way. I think one thing that's really um, yeah important to couple with like applying to my interests is also applying to like what is available and heavily recruiting. Like I had mentioned uh, probably what my first choice was actually was like working in algorithms for online dating. Uh, like I I wrote a passionate cover letter and applied many times to Coffee Meets Bagel, uh, a, a dating app to work for them, but they were just never looking to hire like a, a data scientist in my like but something that I wanted to do. They were more uh, looking for data engineers. So no matter like how much I bothered their employees with how interested I am in working with that, they, they were, uh, I don't think ever going to hire me. So yeah. in in addition to like, yeah, finding what we're interested in also like keeping our ear out for, okay, what companies like are like spe- specifically hiring.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously a lot of constraints like geography, right? I mean, you could work at, uh, I can't remember where some of the other ones are. I think one of them, one of the other dating apps, is in based in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And it's okay, like, well, okay. if you didn't, yeah, if you didn't want to go work in New York, then you probably write that one off and 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 not uh, try to apply there. And it's it, there's deceptively easy ways to narrow the search um, mm-hmm. that make it like more manageable for you to do and give you, in my mind, significantly higher odds. I would like to ask and get into what you find. So obviously you described, um, why you're so interested in fraud detection, but -hmm. getting into more of the weeds about fraud detection, I think would be pretty interesting. You described it as it's like a very interesting space with constraints that I hadn't, I hadn't, um, considered. Do you mind just going Mm -hmm. into that just a little bit?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I was first like realized I was interested in fraud detection, I feel like, uh, like you're saying, I didn't, really know exactly what I was getting into when I was Googling online, uh, like fraud detection data science, most of what I was able to find were saying like, oh, you need to do anomaly detection and you need to know how to like work with imbalanced data. And I really struggled to find like more descriptions uh, other than that. So when I was interviewing, and I was saying, "Wow, oh, I'm really interested in the fraud detection." There's part of me that's like, "Do I know what I'm getting myself into?" Um, and yeah, over the past couple of years that I've been working on it, there's definitely been like a lot of cool like realizations and considerations um, that I yeah that I've realized that I I wasn't aware of before. I feel like the principal one is the like evolutionary nature of fraud where once we put out a model to stop fraud, it's going to find a way around that. And it's pretty, uh, like, it's a huge challenge to machine learning because no matter how, like, how fancy our model is, if the training data is not representative of the evaluation data, then it's not going to perform very well. Um, And so a lot, there's a lot of, considerations that uh, we need to like keep in mind and knowing like, oh, the the fraudsters are going to be reacting to, to these models.
1: And how That's do you, how we, mm-hmm. sorry, how do you design a model that responds quickly? So like I'm doing a video this mm-hmm. week about what happened with Zillow, right? Where essentially oh, there's a lot of problems with, with what they did, but, you know, the pandemic came and their models were not, apt to handle what's happening in a global pandemic like the changes in the real estate market happened more quickly than than previous times and like i think it's their fault for not pulling the plug but at the same time like like their model was not designed to to rapidly adjust and iterate quickly like that what are some things that um and digital transactions are different like scope right like they do happen quickly you do have more data but what can people do to to like make sure their models are up to date in a reasonable time aside from just like constantly retraining like how do you balance that that task
0: um yeah i've watched a few talks online to get a sense of like oh what what different companies do and what you're saying model retraining seems to be the the most uh common solution where just every maybe every day every week every month uh retraining the model so we have the most up-to-date uh information Um, And also um, uh, another approach that I've I've heard mentioned is like looking out for anomalies. So is there like some new suspicious behavior that uh, a a company's models are not uh, picking up on, like if they're able, if they have it like a complementary anomaly detection framework uh, then that can help them like realize quickly. Oh, this is how um, how the fraudsters are, are getting around their models.
1: That's awesome. And and is is fraud detection like a, an almost entirely automated task, or is it like a hybrid task where it's like there are humans evaluating things as well?
0: I I'd say that humans are very important, and that's how a lot of fraud detection like has been traditionally done before machine learning or even data analysis was a lot of manual reviews because it can be like really tricky and ambiguous, like what is fraud and what is not fraud? Like how, how do we craft our, our labels? Um, and yeah, that's a very, very non non-trivial problem because uh, h- how to get those labels. So for example, in, um, in financial like, transaction data, there's the concept of a chargeback where, Someone uh, reports a transaction as fraud, uh, but not all of those like people are dishonest sometimes maybe i uh maybe I regret spending five hundred dollars, so I'll call my bank and say oh, no that, that was fraud um, so filtering out out things like that um, can is something that a, a human can be a lot better at um, than an algorithm or or in the future we'll uh, work on making like the the industry as a whole uh, we'll work on making algorithms better for that.
1: (laughs) This episode of Ken's nearest neighbors is brought to you by Z by HP. HP's high compute workstation grade line of products and solutions. Z is specifically made for high performance data science solutions and I personally use the ZBook Studio and the Z4 workstation. I really love that the Z line can come standard with Linux, and they also can be configured with the data science software stack with the software stack. You can get right into the work of doing data science on day one without the overhead of having to completely reconfigure your new machine Now back to our show so you know we, you talked a little bit about you know people people lying about their uh, their transaction history because they're embarrassed, and you know there's some of the malicious behavior that that goes on with fraud. <laughs> You told me that you're pretty passionate also about people lying with statistics, right? And and I'd love to hear more about how people do that when that happens and what are the, the repercussions associated with that?
0: Yeah, one of my favorite books was, I think it was written in 1952 uh, with the title, like, How to Lie with Statistics. And it's a fun, like, mostly picture book. Uh, where this guy is basically ripping into newspapers written in the 1940s and 1950s who published charts that are very misleading. Um, and um, in order to may- maybe sell something or, or push an agenda. Um, and he goes into like the different ways to spot this uh, or call it out. So uh, a few examples being um, like misleading axes on the graph if if you don't start at zero then you can make a small change look really big and uh like yeah catch people off guard who um who may not know know to like oh watch out for that um and also just like not making uh the limited sample sizes very transparent you can say like oh there was a 33 percent increase uh in in The efficacy of this drug but did you run it on like three subjects (laughs) um so uh, it's a really cool book to uh, like remind our attention like push our attention to those caveats that um that i think are really useful to have in mind uh when evaluating data critically actually I think uh, be- before reading that book, I was uh, like first started thinking about this in terms of scientific uh, data. So in in grad school, um, like I, when I was like first starting out as a grad student, I without much context, like, um, and even uh, now when like broaching a new Field, like I kind of have to take on faith what I'm reading because I don't really have the expertise in order to know like, oh, uh, was this data analyzed appropriately or was it, um, could it have been like misanalyzed in some way? And I found myself in in a few instances in grad school, I am like talking to a few lab mates where we're, we're talking about a, a paper maybe with the author. Of, of that paper um and saying like oh um like the, going through the, the process of their analyses and at some point finding out that there was like some error in their analysis that made upward. the results not valid um and yeah the there's um are really touchy like uh, understandably like we all make mistakes like i I don't judge those people too harshly um but it's really weird to see like oh this is like peer-reviewed published paper um but the like it was only once we got to a very like very technical depth one of the only few people who also like can critique this method before we realized like oh this conclusion or was not accurate because the analysis uh, underlying it was not accurate. Uh, So that was like weird in that once we know that, like no one else knows that, that paper doesn't get retracted um, because it's like really embarrassing to retract a paper. And um, so those
1: papers just keep going. Getting cited, Get cited hundreds of millions. Of times. Well, not millions, hundreds of thousands of times. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, something that I'm, I've am i become recently familiar with, uh, particularly in academia, is the p-value hacking. Mm-hmm. So essentially, like, we evaluate a hundred different variables associated with an outcome we want. And, like, probabilistically, like, five of those will signal as significant. Right? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, hey, we're, like, manipulating statistics to find something significant, even though, like by definition in that circumstance, mm-hmm. like four significance, we would expect like randomly five. Right. And to me, that's like, that's a little bit of a problem with the way we evaluate our, our models in general. I mean, I think most data scientists in industry uh, pay significantly less attention to P value than people in academia, because for for better or for worse in in industry like you get to test things significantly more right you gotta like rely primarily on the results and outcomes rather than if like specific variables are are relevant but i mean that is absolutely being done i've i've seen it done mm-hmm. in, in experiments and been like oh like this gives me a little bit more pause um but, you know, the, the, there's like layers of sophistication with how people can lie, lie with statistics. and it And it gets scary. And like, you know, like a non-data scientist, probably even a researcher off the street wouldn't think about, okay, that is a way to manipulate and find something significant in this analysis when there might be absolutely nothing there.
0: Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of intersecting issues here. Like one being the incentives. Like we're just, like as as researchers, like we really want our results to be significant so we can publish papers and just make our lives easier. So like intentionally or like often unintentionally, like uh, things
1: like P hacking. uh, Yeah. So you want to find something if you're passionate about this research, right? Like you, most people aren't researching something that they don't see promise in, right? You know, like, let's say I'm like crazy about some diet model, and I do research in it, like there's that built-in confirmation bias too, right? I mean, you'd hope that there wouldn't be. And there's some some scientists that like are like, screw this. I, I'm not interested in this, but I want to prove people wrong or I want to see what, what an objective truth is. Um, I, it's hard to spend so much time not being interested in something you're studying.
0: <laughs> totally. I, I do want to mention, uh, though, that... There is like definitely good progress and movements like to to get around this Um, so yeah during grad school I saw more and more labs getting involved in publishing their data so it's open access and in our lab like we uh, along with every paper have a github repo that contains Jupyter notebooks that can regenerate all of the figures Uh, and. Like there's some scary part of that where it's like, oh, well, my code is out there. Someone could find the bug that I have in my code because, like, not everything we write is perfect. Um, but the, so it's a little scary. But it's being it's becoming a lot more commonplace, and that's like that's really good to see. So I I'm that gives me like more hope in in academia and research in the future. Like the more. Uh, the more this, like, open access approach gets amplified.
1: Yeah, well, you know, to that point, I think historically one of the challenges with academia what is is that it was sort of this, like, ivory tower type of thing, right? It's like, oh, there are these PhDs in this closet somewhere, and, like, they're the only ones qualified to work on this problem. I think now, especially with more of a, like, web 3.0, open source nature of things, it's, like, really beautiful that, like, I can go work on or try and can help and contribute in one of these projects. And there's like infrastructure in place where people can check it. And like, if I'm doing good work, great. If I'm not doing good work, like you don't have to merge any of it. Right. <laughs> but like, there's, there's such cool value in like um, hobbyists or, um, or people that are just genuinely caring about a problem, doing good analysis and, and, and finding insight. Like I I would argue that, you know, a room of, of two hundred, like, 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 fairly educated, pretty interesting people working on a problem is better than like two PhDs working on it, right? Uh, assuming you could organize those two hundred people, right? <laughs> because you'd bring different perspectives and different different types of things. It's it's like a a pretty uh, beautiful and elegant solution that we're coming to with a lot of a lot of the the open source problems that we're facing. So I would one hundred percent agree with you. I'm very optimistic about future of of research and information um and hopefully i'll be a part of more of it i've been kind of taken <laughs> taking a break from doing as much many projects but back on the grind soon Understandable. Um, i before i talk to you about sliced i do want to get your sentiment about having a phd in the workplace um, you know mm-hmm. you've obviously you know gone through that process do you think it's been helpful on the job do you think it's something that that is worth pursuing for someone that's interested in data science, but not necessarily research? What is your general sentiment around um around going all the way and and you know pursuing yeah. a doctorate?
0: Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't encourage it uh to to someone who's like, yeah, um just as a means to to progress within data science. Um, but It it is. uh, I feel like it's overvalued uh, in in some sense. A PhD, where I've I've heard some friends like uh, tell me like, "Oh, I'm joining this team, and everyone else has a PhD." Uh, Like I'm very intimidated uh, by that. Um, Or um, like uh, another friend was talking about like. Uh, hiring someone for a specific position, So I'm like oh, a PhD is required for this, and I, I, I like, I felt like that was a, a little weird because I don't feel like the like PhD experience is like necessarily uh, like the only way uh, to like yeah, be or like uh, a to be qualified. It, it is unique. Um, but I, I I questioned that a bit where I I think that if just because a um a position has like a research component, um there's a lot of like if I was a data analyst for five years, I feel like there's just as many like, if, if not more, like really good skills that I would learn in, in that uh position uh compared to like a, a PhD, but I just have a certificate at the end of five years. Um, I th- think that um, I, I personally, uh, when like thinking about uh, like skills and knowledge that are useful to becoming a data scientist, that um, some people may think like, "Oh, a PhD is is especially useful," but um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah,
1: I mean from from a lot of the people I've talked to, it seems like there is a little bit of almost unlearning you have to do uh, coming Mm -hmm. from like academia for a long time is that there are like specific systems in place. There are specific ways that you do things in an educational setting that can be very different from what you do in a more like a professional business private sector setting. And I think that, like a lot of the things that you pick up are really good right like a phd signals that someone can dedicate four or five years of their life to something and like really focus on a problem and solving it that's a good thing for employers to to signal but the level of structure in most phd programs is probably uh like very different and like you you have (laughs) you don't have to deal for the most part with slack uh slack messages every five minutes and then these different types of non-dedicated work that you see in in the workplace so um i i I'm interested in your opinion on that did you, Did you feel like you had to like undo some stuff and and like to really come into your own in a more traditional data science role
0: a bit yeah there's definitely i think um some senses where I feel like I need to understand the whole stack of what I'm working on uh that in some cases in, in a data science role is less practical. Where I'm in grad school, I was used to like being the data engineer in some sense, and like process making a data pipeline uh, to do this, and just being able to be self-sufficient. Whereas, like I I see like being a data scientist on some teams uh, can require like a lot of like passing off ownership in ways that I wasn't used used to. So, for example. Um, like I've had friends on teams who like as a data scientist, they would uh, request for a uh, like machine learning engineer to build a feature for their model. And then they would have to wait for like two months in order to, for that feature to be available for them. Where that would like immensely frustrate me. Whereas like, I really want to like have uh, like access to like that position to uh, in order to do, to do that. And from like the data pipeline, since I, I was in the position at a job where, uh, I was told like, okay, here is our like, uh, da- data pipeline, but you don't have to worry about anything before, uh, this table. Um, but I had a lot of questions about like, how was that table generated? Made you worry more. <laughs> it, and, we we ended up having issues in that there were like differences in expectation between like what the data science team was assuming versus what like the like upstream infrastructure team uh was actually producing so um i'd say like i've i've worked to have like a, more of a level of comfort in terms of like being yeah being more comfortable in um in like passing off work uh, than I used to be, but also maybe like that's a consideration in like finding the positions that I'm most interested in. Like I want to make sure I, I want to be in a role where like I am doing like some of the analytics and have like clear visibility into the data processing um, as I'm as I'm doing uh, like the, the data science modeling work. I'd be hesitant to or to take a position um, if I know in advance that I'm going to be like blind in a lot of aspects.
1: I really like the selectiveness there. I think that that's something really important that it goes maybe a a level deeper than a lot of people think. A lot of people are like, okay, how much money am I going to make? What is the company name? What are the perks that I get? they're not thinking enough about the specific role. And I've been guilty of that too. Like I, I took a job a while ago where like everything lined up it was a, a really good opportunity, but I got into the work and I was like, I don't like any of this work that I'm doing. Like, well, like these, do, this does not cater to my strengths. This data is not, um, I should have done more vetting with, with the types of things that matter for the work rather than for the things that matter like outside of work and for the enjoyment. And I think that's a really important thing to look at and, and to tease out in interviews or in any of these things is like, what is the job going to be like? How much control am I going to have? It is, How much help am I going to have? It is really difficult to
0: tease apart though. So I, I think that's fair. Like often I don't really know what I'm getting into until, yeah, until I'm there. And then what it, I guess hoping there's some flexibility uh, within a role that, that I'm hired in.
1: Does that, so is that something that you like try and optimize for is like how much control over the position that you might have or like seemingly so?
0: I, yeah, I feel like that'd be really difficult to optimize for. Um, So yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure yet. I I feel like I've gotten lucky in like uh, my experiences so far and, and being on having managers who I mesh well with.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, I think we've talked enough about work. I want to ask one more topic and that is on sliced. So you obviously competed in this last season. Uh, I watched a lot of the episodes. Uh, it's kind of a weird time for me in Hawaii, so I didn't get to finish them all, but I caught up a lot on the the YouTube channel too, that, that Nick's been putting out clips on. And I'd love to hear what your experience was uh, with that. You know, like did, what were the, what was like a big takeaway? Was there any, you know, how'd you prepare those types of things?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um I so I was on season 1 episode 1 uh and uh, like I was getting ready for it was, I think it was 6 p.m. Pacific time got a, got a nice cold brew um before uh, Nick uh, Nick and Meg uh, sent us a Kaggle link um and said like okay start you have two hours to to build a model and make some data visualizations um and i i try to just have fun with it uh fr- primarily uh and that's one thing that like nick really highlighted like though people can like pick up like uh some like some useful uh data science like concepts and tools by by watching other people also a big thing is just to to have fun with it there are people who dress up in costumes i i wasn't that creative um but uh just having like a like like i've never had that competitive feeling like racing to analyze a data set before so it was it was a bit stressful um but but reminding myself through the process of Like, okay, uh, just think of this as like, oh, this is a a new data set that I just get to explore, uh, for a couple hours. And that is like one of the things that I find that, um, yeah, I, I would like to do if I had more time, just the process of like exploring a new data set is, is pretty fun. It's like a game.
1: That's awesome. And, uh, so do you think the time limit was appropriate would you have what do you think is optimal maybe like three hours or was it like a pretty good uh pretty good
0: i th- i think two two is definitely good more than that i would start to get tired even me like feel like I, maybe i have a shorter attention span than most people but after like an hour and a half i was kind of starting to check out uh and i'd want to move around a lot so at, at the first part i would um Focus on like processing data and then do some modeling. Um, But I think in both episodes I was in, like the last thirty minutes, I was like, okay, I just want to make some plots right now. Um, There is like a data visualization uh, aspect of of the judgment uh, that, that motivates us to to switch around with it. But I feel like I was pretty drained at the like halfway through and and especially at the end that. Um, yeah, more time would be good, I, I but I feel like also less time would be a bit too rushed. So I hope they stick with the, with the two hours for the future seasons.
1: Excellent. And did you do any preparation beforehand? You, how did you practice? How did you get tuned up for the, for the actual competition?
0: Yeah, there was a season zero that they had, uh, the data sets uh, released on Kaggle too. So I, I went through some of those data sets and, um try to discipline myself to do a mock run that's like okay if i just receive this let me sprint through training a model quick um so yeah i feel like now there were like 12 episodes in the first season if people want to like have that experience there's a lot of data sets for them to go through and I, i feel like that's one thing but uh, down the line, I think I'll end up going through several of those data sets just just for fun
1: to explore awesome. do you think that that is an effective way to learn to give yourself time pressure like that? I mean, I would imagine there are some benefits, but uh, you know it might not be completely dissimilar to some interview processes
0: Totally. Um, yeah I, I would say it's a really nice way to learn in that like each new data set i uh, I dive into, there's usually like some method of processing I need to look up. So I might learn a new tool in pandas or uh I might run into, oh, I want to process this text in a certain way. So I feel like it's a good exercise in like discovering some new tools or, or freshening up on some things I haven't used in a while. So maybe not so much the time pressure part, but more just the novelty, like, yeah, repeated novelty. Of uh, jumping into data sets and also um, looking at uh, examples of what other people have done. Like, I feel like, especially um, as I first started analyzing data, like the things that helped me most were reading other people's code uh, and discovering the ways they're doing them and the the tools they're using that I wasn't familiar with. So, um, yeah, watching the, um, watching. The YouTube videos or finding the notebooks that some of the contestants uh, put up to see the, the exact functions that they use. Like I, I know that some of the contestants were really crazy about uh, an algorithm called Cat Boost, which I haven't dove into yet. But that's one thing that seemed to work really well. So I need to try that out at some point.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think code review is something that. I didn't start doing until more recently like the last couple years and i think that that's made me a better thinker right because you can kind of jump into someone else's brain for 30 minutes 40 minutes see what they were thinking and then you're like oh why didn't i approach it that way you know that, that that's one of the the quickest ways to be able to like simulate or try a bunch of different approaches that you might not have traditionally done and you know i really love that methodology i really like doing that. I think I even made a video on it because I was so excited about it. Um but absolutely. I'm I'm glad you had a good experience on Slice. I'm I'm excited to watch the next season. I told Nick I might even compete in probably season 3. So um yeah, I'll, I'll probably be giving you a ring for any any tips and tricks to to improve my performance there. Maybe you can distract some of the <laughs> other contestants as well. So uh you know, Scott, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I don't have any more questions for you. H- how can people uh, you know, find you, what's the best way to reach out? Uh, and are there any projects you're working on right now that you'd like to share about?
0: Um, yeah, I, th- I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to get in touch from there. There's a link to my website, which has my email address. I'm definitely happy to talk to anyone who wants to chat about like fraud detection or, or data science in general. Uh, definitely reach out um, if you want to. Um, as, as for projects related to one thing we were talking about i uh gave my first crack at board game design uh making a board game called p hacking uh where it's a competitive game between two research labs who are both manipulating the same data set and it's it's a card-based game where Basically, uh, like I will get to manipulate one data point and then you get to manipulate one data point. And there are certain cards that allow us to, like, oh, make a rounding error or like swap the labels of the data sets. So I'm actually pretty happy with it. Like, I feel like the mechanism is pretty, like, works pretty well in that um, at the end of the game, like, I am trying to get. Uh, Population A to be significantly higher than population B, and you're trying to do the opposite. Um, So there's this, like, yeah, this, uh, like, where we're adversarial in it. Like, I'm trying to increase some samples, and you're trying to prevent them from getting too high. And we're planning out, like, oh, which action should we use sooner rather than later. Um, So, yeah, I would. encourage people to, to check out that i made a YouTube video of uh, that. Heck yeah. Shoot that, that over. Game. I will
1: link it 100%. That sounds so fun. And uh, so is it two players or can you have more than that? Or what are we looking at?
0: Yeah. So I, I did make a mock game manual. So two players would be most natural, but I think it can be extended to four where it's like two teams of two. And then you basically alternate terms. Um I'm still iterating on like the, the specifics i feel like i need to wait until i like take a sabbatical from my job <laughs> to like focus on it full time um but yeah there there's a website like open or something um it's it's linked on my on my website but you can actually go in and play like a mock rendition of the game so would love if people tried it out uh g- gave some feedback uh, or just yeah uh, others interested about p hacking
1: yeah absolutely i will uh, remind me i will make sure i link it in the description i will go check it out that sounds fascinating to me i personally quite enjoy board games and card games so i've been having a lot of fun i i know uh i think uh, nick did a catan uh mm-hmm. tournament a while ago and i it was before i really knew him well so i'm would love to get into into the circuit and do some analytics. So same. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Scott. I really enjoyed this. I'm super excited for this to come out. Um, you know, I I want to check out the board game. I also want to continue to have some more conversations with you down the road. So thank you again. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Kenji, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pelleriti.